Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. It's a spring break week for our parish, so I'm expecting there's a lot of people joining from Florida via live stream or other parts of the country. Uh, but thanks to all of you for braving the warm weather and coming out. I think last week I mentioned a, uh, a storm was bearing down on us with snow. This Today I put away my snow shovel, so if it snows again, you know who to blame. Our speakers uh, throughout Lent, uh, we have one each Wednesday during Lent, and those are arranged for us by the St. Joseph Evangelization Network, all provided gratis by uh, St. Joseph. So uh, we have a free will offering basket in the back, so please be generous with a donation to St. Joseph. Our speakers tonight, or our speaker tonight, I'm delighted to introduce is Mike Burke from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish, a uh, lifelong member of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Mike Burke was diagnosed, diagnosed with cystic fibrosis an incurable genetic disorder that causes severe damage to the lungs, digestive system, and other organs in the body when he was 14 months old. Initially, Mike wasn't expected to live past kindergarten. When he turned five, his life expectancy was seven. When he was seven, it was nine, and when he turned nine, his expectant life expectancy was 11. For almost 30 years, he lived with a life expectancy just beyond his current age. This prognosis led Mike to shelter his emotions and bury himself in his work. When he was 30 and asked to provide a lecture about cystic fibrosis, his research revealed that he was now 20 years beyond his predicted death age. That revelation changed his outlook on life. He has now since become a marathon runner and was married. In 2014, Mike's book, Waiting to Die, Running to Live, was published. The book provides a fascinating account of the struggles and triumphs that he faced and the wisdom and insight that he gained over the years. Uh, that book, as well as other items from St. Joseph, are available in the back, and Mike is free to mention that. So please join me in wel welcoming Mike Burke to give us an inspiring talk tonight. I'm told it's a big no-no to bring your cell phone, but if I don't watch my time, I could have you here for hours. So that's the only reason I have this up here with me. So thanks for uh, inviting me into your parish tonight. Um, I wondered what I would talk about specifically being Lent and with everything going on with our archdiocese in Ukraine and masks or non-masks and vaccines or non-vaccines. Uh, one word kept coming to mind and I think it goes great with Lent and that is hope. An unapologetic, undying hope. I found a very interesting uh, definition of hope and that's expecting the best in the future and working to achieve it believing that a good future is something that can be brought about. 
Now that has a lot of self-determination in there that we can bring about the good results we hope for. Uh, it's really a choice. We can be hopeful or we can be despairing. This is our choice. Uh, and it's not always an easy choice. The heavier the thing going on in your life or the more things going on, hope seems to be fleeting. But as Christians, we get a big, big boost toward this hope through a trust in God. You cannot almost turn a page in the Bible without finding some idea of hope that things will work out with the help of our Lord. Uh, what hit me first was Romans. Uh, we know that may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is the God of hope. I don't know how much more it could be said that this is what our Lord wants from us, is to be hopeful. We can own our response to what's going on in the world and be inspired by God. I think that's the point. He doesn't pull the puppet strings of us. He inspires us to live as he would and as Jesus would instruct us. We're children of God. So I hope that seems very empowering, that you have this choice and that we have this guidance from our Lord. I think he, uh, someone even said that. Everything is possible for one who believes. That's Mark 9, 23. So to me, Lent is the ultimate season of hope where we anticipate with joy the promise from Christ's suffering on the cross. It's the ultimate promise of heaven. So I want to reiterate that. Hope is to expect the best and work to achieve it. The daily effort to live as a child of God is a really long journey. We're alive for quite a while, aren't we? And your journey will have some testing and require recommitting to hope all the time. And I'm an example of that, but so are my parents and everybody who walked with me in now what is a pretty long life. Uh, as the bio described, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at one year old and they gave me five to seven years to live. They told my mom and dad I'd be lucky to get to kindergarten. There was not one teenager alive, much less an adult. A really heavy regimen of medicine started. I was taking 8,000 pills a year before I could probably even, well, before I was even off Gerber. Right, so taking pills all the time just to digest food. Without those pills, I would not be here today. And my dad used to have to, to thump on me every night. He would lay me across his lap while he's watching TV or whatever he was doing, and he would start thumping on my chest, my back, and my sides to loosen up the junk in my lungs that cystic fibrosis produced which then attracted bacteria, which caused the early life expectancy. Every night that I could remember for 12 years, my dad beat on me. <laughs> Maybe that's not something I should make light of, but on vacations, 
camping, when he was traveling on business, my mom would thump on me. There's nothing that would make them do that except hope. I think people probably thought they were a little crazy for being so dedicated to their boy when there was no reasonable expectation that I would make it very long. So, of course, they struggled with their hope, right? Who wouldn't get this diagnosis for their child? Uh, and they started sheltering me because they, they were told germs can take your little boy out. So they sheltered me. And I got three older brothers, and there's not much sheltering from those animals. But they did. So one day, uh, you know, like a day in November, it's chilly, rain, misty, raining a little bit. You know how we get here in the Midwest. My brothers and all the neighborhood boys are out in the backyard killing each other in some stupid football game we made up. Kill the boy with the football was the name of the game. And I, I was inside looking out, wanting to be part of the fun. And my dad finally saw it. He saw that he was holding me back, sheltering his little boy. So he couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. He said, Michael, go get ready. I, I don't remember it. I was maybe four or five. And the story goes, I went running around the house, putting on all the warm clothes one could find. And my dad opened up that sliding glass door, and I shot out there to get into the fray, right? Brutal, brutal going on out there. And before I could even get into the pack, someone took me out. My dad, with fear goggles, like, whoa, he recalls that I was flying through the air, crashing into the wet, muddy, germy ground. And he opens that door to come save his little boy, in his words. Anybody guess what I did before he could come outside? I got up, and like all the other knuckleheads, I went in for more, and the mud was a badge of honor, so I didn't clean it off. Dad has told that story millions of times, and the question is always, Jack, what did you do next? He said, I closed that door, I turned around, and I never watched him like that again. He let go of his unhopefulness, and he stopped protecting me so much. I maintain that that one act led to all the other things they allowed me to do, maybe through cautious eyes, which led me to be at the ripe old age of 52, decades and decades beyond my life expectancy, and clearly quite healthy. When it came to my own time to be hopeful, I was 15, and I was a pretty healthy little guy. As soon as I started taking the medicine, my body responded. And I wasn't very sick. I coughed a lot, which was nature of the game. I was a little guy because I still didn't digest food very well. But I played soccer and baseball, and my brothers beat me thoroughly. So at 15, I started getting curious. Man, I take a lot of pills. My new high school friends are asking me about this thing. Like the grade school friends, they didn't think about it. I, they just grew up with me. But the high school friends, they were curious. And I went into the hospital every year for what they called a tune-up. 
keep the healthy kids healthy. So I had to tell them, eh, I go in the hospital, I have cystic fibrosis, and it finally hit. I take a lot of pills. My dad thumped on me every night, like this was a serious thing. So before the internet, I rode my bicycle up to the library, picked out some medical journal, and read that my life expectancy was 18. And then I started asking questions and discovered I wasn't supposed to make it past kindergarten and start observing every year when I was in the hospital. There were other kids in the hospital and they weren't making it. And I put it all together and my hope disappeared. I wasn't an unhappy kid. I didn't try to escape anything. I just didn't want to think about it. And it's not good to avoid things you can't avoid. Only hope in the form of, once again, my dad would turn that switch for me. I was 18, working on barely graduating from high school because I didn't care about school. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't going to live long enough for it to matter. But I had never said anything like that to him. But I said it when he said, what are you doing for college? Your older brothers are in college. And I said, I'm not going to college. Now I said this to the wrong guy, first of all. And he said, well, why don't you think you're going to college? And I said, well, I'm not gonna be alive long enough for it to matter. And in all of his wisdom and directness, and pardon my uh, French here, he said, both not. And he didn't say snot. You're going, and you're going to do well. And it just clicked, finally. If Dad believes, and I really don't have a choice, it sounds like, I've got something to live for. And little seed of hope was planted. And I went to college, and I did exceptionally well, even though I had never done well in school before. And then it just started growing. Once I took the first step, then I thought more was possible. And I got a job right after school, and I didn't like it because it was boring, and I knew it wasn't for me. Besides, I wanted to cram life into this short life expectancy, because at 23 or 4 now, the life expectancy was 25, 26, always hanging out there. And I was affected by that. While I was hopefully moving through, I didn't have an unapologetic hope. And we need an unapologetic, unwavering hope. So I moved to Colorado just because I wanted to, and I wanted to see things, I wanted to see the world before my time came, and all heck broke loose. I was married and that fell apart because I didn't want to address the big elephant in the room and you can't have a relationship when you don't talk about the most serious things. I was still unhopeful in that way. Uh, I lost my job that I had done so well and identified so closely with and my health took a big downturn. I lost lung capacity for the first time in my life. I lost a bunch of weight which those two things correlate. When you lose weight with cystic fibrosis, your lungs decline. So all that was happening. But for the first time, for the really the first time, I had that unwavering hope. I thought I can do anything I want to do. I've survived the disease. 
I've done well, I did the college thing, I did the career thing so far, I can do this. And I did. Very shortly, being a young guy, 26, of course I got a new job. And my health turned around because I started taking care of myself a little better. But I still wasn't ready for relationships. So over the past, you know, the, the, the years preceding or uh, after that, I did really good in my career. I moved around the country because I still wanted to cram life in, right? Turned 30. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I'm this close to being a director of sales for a big hotel company. And the speech that was mentioned, I was asked to give a speech to Cystic Fibrosis Group. I did my research. Really had buried my head for a number of years. Didn't want to think about it. But you can't avoid it. When you're going to give a good speech about CF, you better know what's going on. So I read about the research and the fundraising, and I thought, huh, I wonder what the life expectancy is nowadays. I had just turned 30, and the life expectancy was 28. I had been chasing this life expectancy for so long, and now I'm on the wrong side of it. And you might have think that that would create despair and more unhope, but that charge I got from dad was now my own. And I thought, I'm, I can do this thing. I can beat the situation. So I got the promotion, went up to Detroit, started fixing my fifth hotel, because that's what I was, I was a fixer. And I started working lots and lots of hours, which I didn't mind. I loved my job. But 14 hours a day, seven days a week, not taking care of your body, not taking care of your soul, I got really sick again. Really, really sick. I had to make a decision. Do I continue this thing that I've built, intentionally built, or do I do something different and really lean in to the thing that scared me so much. So I leaned in. I really thought I could do it, and I was tired of burying my head. I, I heard the thought patterns that said, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna die, you're gonna be alone, and what value can you bring in the world? And now I look back on my young life, and I thought, well, none of those lies are true. I need to quit lying to myself. So I made the choice not to listen to the unhopeful message I was giving myself. As a result, I moved back home to St. Louis, St. Charles, and all the doctors ever wanted me to really do as a young kid was exercise. You know, my dad was thumping, I was breathing in treatments, and I was taking tons of pills, but exercise was really good therapy. Heavy breathing creates coughing, which gets the stuff out, and plus your body's stronger. So I started running, but you know, three miles, three days a week, my brain couldn't handle it. It's so boring. There was nothing bold about that. So I thought, I've done a pretty good amount of things that I set my mind to. I'll bet you I could run a marathon. So I told my parents, and they had the fear goggles, 26.2 miles without stopping as fast as you can with 20% of your lungs destroyed and the inability to digest food. That doesn't sound like a marathon kind of situation. 
but I was set. I had a new charge in my life. And it's funny, one of the other words in the Bible that continues to resurface is perseverance and endurance. Specifically, the word endurance. And I was an endurance athlete, or an aspiring endurance athlete. In Thessalonians, we hear, we remember before our God and Father your work produced faith, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance, endurance, it kept coming up. So I trained and trained and trained and failed a couple times. Uh, by the way, my body also loses uh, salt at astronomical rates in my sweat, which means I dehydrate really quickly. Can't breathe, don't digest food, lose electrolytes. Again, not a body for running races. It's like a, I reside in a Ford Pinto in here, right? You don't take a Ford Pinto to the races, but I took this body to the races, and I ran and completed my first marathon. Got hooked. I thought, I, I did it. I put in all the effort. My outlook on life had shifted. I thought great, great things were possible. Something happened at that race that also returned me to faith because the disease made me question a lot of things in life, including God. At that race, we did this loop like four times, and my dad would go out and see me in various places, and he came up next to a woman, and he said, what are you here for? Well, my husband's running. He's running for health reasons. My dad's like, oh, great. And she returned the favor. Who's, who are you watching today? I'm watching my son. He also runs for health reasons. He has cystic fibrosis. Now, this is Tulsa. We're from St. Charles. It's a private marathon. I had to beg to get in. So 200 runners. Chicago has 50,000 runners. This one had 200. And the woman starts crying as my dad says he has cystic fibrosis. So he knows, he knows he struck a chord. He says, you okay? And she said, I have two granddaughters with cystic fibrosis. All we've ever heard of is death. I can't believe your son is 31 and running this marathon. He tells me this story on the long, painful drive back to St. Charles, and it clicked that I was doing something beyond me. I was doing it for me, but that was the clue. There were others to take into consideration, perhaps give them the hope that I never had because there were no surviving adults. It also turned my head toward the possibility of something much, much greater. Faith, our God. And it took me a while. I started reading some books. Why do Catholics do that? I started reading, you know, little C.S. Lewis, little uh, Tolkien, right? Some of these great philosophers and uh, started turning the light on to something much, much larger. But I wasn't really ready. And then a friend of mine, my lifelong friend, he was kind of proud of me a little bit. We grew up together in Catholic schools. And uh, I, was, I was ready. So 
I was going to do this on my time. So I went up to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton on a dark Wednesday night because no one would be there. And I was going to get a, uh, oh gosh, a program, right? And I was going to look for confession times. And I would go to confession on my time and then go to my first mass in quite a long time. So I go, all right, I, I pull up, it's dark. I open the car door, I leave the car running, it's right there, and the doors are closed and locked, of course, right? Why would the church be open on a dark night, Wednesday? And as I'm walking back toward the car, I hear a voice from the dark, and I look around and all I see is Mary. I'm like, well, if Mary has that deep of a voice, I don't know what's going on. It was a man, and it was uh, our parish priest. His name is escaping me, and I can't believe it. Oh, hi, Father. He said, well, well how can I help you? Ah, I'm good. No, no, how, how can I help you? So he wasn't going to let go. I said, well, I'm just looking for a, a program. Oh, good, let me get you one. So he was clearly waiting for someone to pick him up for a late dinner. So I follow him to the church doors. We go inside to get the program. And I'm just begging he'll hand it to me so I can get out of there. And he said, what are you looking for? <laughs> you know, I'm like, can you just let me out of this thing? I said, well, I'm looking for confession times. And he said, how about right now? Cars running. His people had just pulled up to get him. The lights are now. I tried to do this in secret, and now the car lights are blaring on me, right? And he hears my confession right there. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar. That started my return and the acceptance that there is something much larger than me and certainly the disease in life, any hardship. Then I found this community who increased my hope through God, went to a um, chirp retreat because that neighbor of mine, that buddy since the fourth grade was hounding me. He would not let go. And I found my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Proverbs tell us a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for, for adversity. A brother and sister are born for adversity. So the thing I thought would chase so many people away because it was heavy and serious and I cough and it sounds disgusting when I cough and my belly's a hot mess so we have bathroom episodes that we would care not to have. I thought that would chase people away but what it was doing was just the opposite. It's no surprise that when that light turned off I met my current wife of 20 years now, and I could talk to her about it. And in my fear even, I told her about it, and most other women I dated 
put me on this pedestal. You're so brave. You're so courageous. This one simply said, what are you doing about it? She was the one. So I have now this very intimate community of my wife, my brothers and sisters in the parish, and of course my mother and father, who are the, the stalwarts, the rocks of faith and support. I ended up running nine full marathons because I'm crazy and I just can't stop. In the same time period, I run 20 half marathons. I was asked to coach other marathoners because I got it. And when they were having a hard time in their marathon routine, they couldn't complain to me, right? So I became this source of encouragement. The thing, the very thing that caused so much ache and pain in what felt like a curse so, for so long truly became a blessing, and I finally saw it. So I'm out, and I'm stronger, and I'm giving back. And you know when you give, it just, just gets reflected on you tenfold. But I'm still coughing a lot. Still don't digest food very well. And my lungs are declining slowly and steadily. All through, that, all through those 11 years. So that was my 30s running into my 40s. I thought, man, I can do this marathon thing. It's easy. What's next? An Ironman triathlon. 70 miles of swimming, biking, and running in the dog heat of Indiana. It was 4th of July weekend. And I literally could not walk another step. And I had to quit the race. Never quit a race before. But I was dehydrating. I had a headache. I'd stopped sweating. I had goosebumps. I was that close from heat stroke. And I told myself, my body might not make it, but this will. And so I went as far as my body could go. Had a hard time, puked a lot for two days, couldn't eat for a couple days, complained incessantly that I didn't make it until someone set me straight. Mike, you're now 41. You're years and years beyond your life expectancy. You have cystic fibrosis. That's a victory. And they were right. After all of that, uh, my lungs were declining. I was in the hospital every year for seven years in my 40s. The disease getting harder. Uh, I think I was 47, and my lungs were down to 60% lung capacity, meaning 40% of my lungs were dead from the disease. At that point, all I wanted to do was make it to 50. That was the goal. And I had hope, but it was hard to hold on to. Doing the routine when it didn't seem to make a difference. I couldn't run anymore, but I biked. I could still bike, and I did. So in 2018, I thought, man, I can't run anymore. I'm declining. I'm going to keep doing the thing that is good for me. So I got on the bike, and with terrible lungs, I rode 1,800 miles for the year. It was pretty good. They were slow, painful, out-of-breath miles, but I did it. And then in 2019, I started a new medicine, and it started actually helping the underlying genetic malfunction. So all the pills are symptomatic, all the 
thumpings were symptomatic. This got to the source of the problem. And that decline stopped. But I still couldn't breathe well. But I thought I did 1,800 miles last year feeling really bad. I'll bet you I could double it. So I tried for 3,000 miles and made it. And they were hard, hard miles. See, that hope, once it's in there, is hard to really get out of there. And we need to keep pushing in positive ways. I wasn't being pushed by fear and anger and despair. I was being pulled by something greater. And in 2020, another new medicine came out, January 4th. And five days later, I stopped coughing. The lifelong cough that produced the nastiest looking stuff disappeared. The new drug, the new twist on the previous drug is dang near a cure. They call it a functional cure. As long as you take the medicine and your body keeps responding to it, I will never cough like that again. Started gaining even more weight, as you can tell. My doctor, who I love dearly, we have this wonderful relationship, and I'll do his accent because I love it and I have so much respect. He's from India. He says, Michael, your lungs are looking great, but you need to lose a little weight. I almost threw something at him because it was so hard to gain weight my whole life. Remember, I don't digest food without 13,000 pills a year. So I said, well, Doc, you could lose some weight, so let's do this together. And he did. He bought a bicycle, and we've been riding together. So my effort allowed me to challenge the chief pulmonologist and CF specialist a very special thing you can do when you are really living fully. That new drug is called Trikafta and literally reversed the disease in my body 20 years. In 2001, when I moved back home and ran my first marathon, I was at 80% lung capacity, and that's where I am right now at 52 years old. And I can't lose weight. Literally having to go on a diet. Only an unwavering, unfailing hope would have kept me driving, running every mile, every step coughing. All I ever wanted to was to run one mile without coughing. And if I could run, I would not cough. When I bike, I biked 100 miles in one day last summer and didn't cough one time. And I had energy to spare. I crushed it. Endurance. It comes back to endurance. When I wrote my book, I had found this quote from James, and it really, really stuck with me. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Hope fuels endurance. Endurance has the promise of perfection 
through the Lord. We got that? Hope produces endurance. Endurance through the Lord produces perfection. I really, really like that, and it has stuck with me. I uh, went to confession one time just to wrap things up, and uh, there we had a, a retired priest, and uh, he was an old fella. So I go to confession, and I'm like, man, I'm going to get some Hail Marys and, and some Our Fathers to say. So I told him what was on my mind, and uh, my penance was, read this book. So I went out and got the book, and it was by a German priest. I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be a dry, right? A German priest writing a book. And it was pretty dry, but one sentence stood out, and that sentence also changed my life. Now, it's not a uh, scripture, and I didn't write it down, but I think I'm going to get it for you. You ready for this? Love is revealing to someone else that person's own beauty. I'll repeat that because it's a little wonky. Love is revealing to someone else that person's own beauty. And that's been my mission. Whether I'm speaking on a corporate thing, which is all about mindset, or doing something so passionate like a good spiritual talk, that's love coming to others. And I've received so much of that kind of love in my life. We just have to recognize it for what it is. So thank you so much for your attention and the smiles and the nods. It really helps to know that you're hearing these words and spending your precious time with the parish tonight. Thank you. Thank you.